Welcome to the Inkwell Podcast. My name is Link McAlbany and I'm a Shiatsu practitioner from Melbourne, Victoria. On today's show, we have Con Margaritas. Con has been in private practice since 1992. Currently, he's a lecturer at the Australian Shiatsu College, teaching classical Namakoshi Shiatsu, men's health, and workplace health and safety. Previously, he lectured at the East West College for 14 years and at the Centre for Adult Education in Melbourne for 12 years. Con was actually my very first Shiatsu teacher, and since then, he's been a role model of mine that I deeply respect and admire. We are also joined once again by our wonderful co-host, Mr. Scott Brisbane. Scott is currently practicing craniosacral therapy out of the Australian Shiatsu College in Brunswick, Victoria. He has studied and taught traditional Chinese medicine and acupuncture, as well as naturopathy and flower essences. He also has a weekly Drew Yoga class that he teaches, and he explores various meditation techniques as part of his personal practice. And to lead us into the show today, we have Melbourne band Miso, who have recently reunited, which has brought a lot of excitement and joy to their fans. Uh, the music you'll hear on today's podcast is some of their older work from their first release. And if you're interested in hearing what they're up to these days, you can find them at soundcloud.com slash tuneintomiso. You can also find them on Facebook. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Yeah, so one, one thing that you mentioned before that I would like to go back to a little bit is this idea of uh, letting go of things that you're um, thinking about other people or, you know, things you're holding on to. Uh, is it just the present, uh, being present and mindfulness that, or is there a particular technique you use or philosophy that you use to kind of actually, actually let go of things? Cause well, the f- so that is the process. <laughs> That essentially is the process. Mm-hmm. What I'll probably shift a little is it's not so it's not so much a let it's not actually a letting go. Okay. It's it's almost like an embracing of accepting what is. So it's actually not pushing away as a metaphor. It's actually uh, it's palms open and you're accepting what's there or what's being presented. So this this notion of the letting go, I'm not sure it doesn't resonate with me at the moment in life. I don't think it's about where someone goes, just let go of it. Because if you're holding something, you can't let go of it. Mm. Yeah, if you've got, if you're grasping something, at that point in time, you can't let go. So until you open up your hands, it, it's not so much a letting go for me and maybe it's semantics but it's for me it gives me a metaphor to go it's palms open that I become open to this aspect of giving and receiving so in the surrender maybe it is there that it actually evaporates or it I no longer am carrying it Mm. so maybe it is letting go I was just being a bit pedantic on on the wording where more so where people go you know just put it put it or get rid of it yeah just get over it, which sometimes we do just get over things. But many times we don't just get over things. We, we carry things at a very, very, or at all these different levels. Mm. Sometimes these levels are so deep, or many of these levels are so deep, I go, we're quite unconscious in it. So until we bring it, 
to our awareness. It's almost like we have to gather it mm. and sit with it, hold it, feel it, sense it in our bodies. And it's in the subtleties. And so this is a holding. It's actually not a, it's not a letting go. Yeah, yeah. Con, I um, uh, have been taking so much from um, my listening of these podcasts, these audio dharma podcasts recently. And one of the things that I really, really liked um, was that uh, one of the speakers referred to one of the other speakers saying that um, they often call mindfulness bodyfulness. And for me, that's kind of fantastic because um, my body and being in my body is a great difficulty and has been a great difficulty for a uh, much of my life. So there, therefore, you know, like the process of coming back into my body and studying it and being in it and meditating on it is a way of actually drawing into the present. It's a way of actually discovering and feeling tensions and it's a way of observing those tensions. It's a way of giving space to those tensions. It's a way of letting go of those tensions. Mm. I think letting go is a skill. And uh, you can polish it. You can learn it. You, the more you let go of stuff, the more you're able to let go of stuff. But, you know, having said that, I'm a Cancerian and one of our main skill sets is holding on. <laughs> them claws. Yeah. <laughs> Pincer. But, uh, yeah, so, but I, I, th- I think that, you know, like if um, astrology and karma and um, all of this, these things kind of come together, the Cancerians um, out there probably have the lesson of learning to let go in their life because it's not an easy thing actually yeah well how how does this apply also with your clients because i know you've mentioned before this idea of anchoring and um and creating space for the client and not getting attached to the client's tension or wanting to release it and i remember last time i treated yukon um one of your comments was that i was i was doing a lot of you know, harder work, releasing work, but I wasn't doing a lot of, I guess, of the more nourishing, the kyo, kind of looking at the softness stuff. Um, and I mean, I am getting quite good at the releasing part, the really physical stuff. But recently I've been trying to figure out what's a good approach or intention in terms of, you know, someone's got tension in their shoulders. How, how do I release that without putting the demand or the expectation on it uh, and I mean yeah because obviously I do have to try to do it <laughs> um, but is there something in the same approach in terms of of accepting what's what's being held and and I, I know there's the technique of going towards or into the tension um, yeah can you guys comment on that the something that's taken me a few decades to understand is Masanaga, who was uh, quite at the forefront of shiatsu theory and practice, where he took uh, Namakoshi's work. So he was a student of Namakoshi, who essentially has brought shiatsu, I'll say, to the world stage, essentially through his, through what the exposure of what how he lived his life. And Masanaga essentially brought the the concept of energetics and this is my wording the model of energetics back into body work or back into shiatsu 
So where Namakoshi looked at or presented shiatsu as being more based on neuromuscular system within the body and on the nervous system, mass, and even though he spoke that, I'm sure at a deeper level, the, the, the concept of energetics still held. It just wasn't presented in the public forum. So what Masanaga did was look at where I went before where I was talking about our needs and getting them satisfied. So Masanaga talks about, imagine a human being as a single-celled organism, even though we're multi-celled. So we're at a point of balance and what happens, an unconscious desire or impulse gets invoked within this organism, within us. So this, that's the kyo, or the emptiness, the deficiency of energy. So we, it, the organism realises there's an impulse that comes up that's unconscious, and then, through the action, we then go to nurture or satisfy that unconscious impulse, or desire, or need, whatever it is. As I said earlier, if it if we actually satisfy and nurture that impulse, we then come back to equilibrium again. If we don't, we start developing these energetic patterns of emptiness being the impulse, and then the excess, or the jitsu in Japanese, being too much energy. So this is how action, the, the action that we take, reinforces energetic patternings within our meridian or energy body system. So we have the ability with shiatsu to treat the shoulder or the existing symptom. We also have the ability to go to these to the kyo or the emptiness or the deficiency where it appears nothing's happening or there's not necessarily pain or it's a chronic condition and actually work on that that then allows if we nurture that and satisfy it, we get met. And so what happens is you then get this rebalancing or redistribution of energy between the emptiness or the unconscious impulse and the jitsu, which is our ongoing trial attempts or actions to meet this. But all this does is just creates imbalance. So we can do either with, with bodywork or with shiatsu. We can go and treat the shoulder direct. You can go work on it and you can do some work that'll get the chi moving, do a little bit of dispersal. We can do that. Simultaneous, and how we, and I won't go, so I'll just keep it at that level for now. And then we can also go to the emptiness, to the unconscious, to that part that hasn't been satisfied or nourished or met bring through our awareness there the client is able to come to that point and so they begin doing their own energetic rebalancing so to speak so at a very simple level so without the client having to talk and can you remind me what was the word you said was it body there was something bodyfulness bodyfulness so for me the more the client is able to come into their body, to me the body is present time consciousness. There's no past or future in the body. 
it's operating in, re in physical reality in this space of the earth that we're in. And so the more their awareness comes into their body, the more they're able to surrender to what's happening with regards to the body work without going into their thinking or intellectual faculties of what's he doing? Why is he pressing there? This hurts. Why is he doing that? It's my right shoulder that's sore and he keeps going to my left knee. What's he doing? Why? 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 So if the person's able to stay present and experience their body, bring awareness to what they're feeling in their body, they actually don't need to do any dialogue or expression unless they want to, that they don't actually need to know what it is that's happening to become present, feel and come into their body. So within that, I find there's lots of then different techniques within Shiatsu and other body work to whether it's relaxing nervous system, whether it's building up this emptiness, the deficiency, the unconsciousness or the impulses that the client's feeling so that they're better able to respond with their choices or the actions that they make so they don't keep doing the same thing, expecting a different result and it still doesn't satisfy them. Mm, I think that the same thing, like if we take the example of the... Uh the tight shoulders that um, what uh, probably most body workers out there have the ability or the skill with is to actually work directly on those tight shoulders and to um, come in as an external force with elbows, hands, feet or whatever and relax those shoulders. My main problem with that is that give it what two three four or five days max and the shoulders are back where they were before so the power in the process is the bodyfulness and it's not your bodyfulness although it's involved in the process it's actually the clients coming into their own body and on the level of what's actually happening in the treatment they are able to actually disperse their own tension <clears throat> in their shoulders. Now that lasts a lot longer. They have to work really hard to actually bring that tension back in because it's created a consciousness. There's been a consciousness at some level that's actually occurred where they have let go of the um, tension in their shoulders. Now what I... I think uh, like a, the, the, the craniosacral process is similar but probably different words. In fact, probably not even different words actually. But it's, it's, there's a few things that uh, can be done. Uh, one is that um, um, you anchor yourself. So yeah, so as far as transference is concerned because that theme that we were talking about before where you were creating a space, I, I was kind of probably fishing a little bit as far as, you know, like you being a little bit kind of cagey as to not wanting to take on the other person's energy because you're feeling tired and if you open yourself up that you will take it on. Whereas a part of me was probably saying, well, you can actually still relate 
from your tiredness. You don't have to pretend to be anything but tired. Admit to that space, be that space, but also be in the space of actually being in a treatment which, you know, ideally would require energy, but like it might be just a slightly different type of treatment because I'm feeling a bit tired, but it shouldn't take away from your presence and your the power of the treatment. The presence is so, so important, you know, like I think that um, uh, the more the practitioner can be bodyful, the more the client can be bodyful. And... Um, so in that space where you're kind of feeling like there is a gap and a distance between you and the client, my recommendation is to, you know, drop in to yourself, really, really just drop in to yourself right here now or right there then. And um, it's, that's the process because that's the process of life and living, um, when when um, situations occur that where there's a um, like a, 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 a disconnect in relationship or there's a a problem uh, in your relating with other people, drop drop into your feet, drop into your body, drop into your middle, your core, your being, and be there. You we don't have to be anything else except really at home and um, that's in the therapeutic space that's just a really really powerful thing to do with your client because when they're interacting with you and because there's, there's, there's a few things there's the client there's you and then there's the relationship hmm. but really there's only two there's the client and there's you. And if you are fully and truly embodied, then when they project, they, they, they just get the real. So it bounces back and it bounces back as he's totally in his own self. He's completely inhabited his own space. And it's like for them, I can call it back in. I can call me back into my own body. I can come back in. And once that starts, the, the, the person reconnecting with their own space, the person reconnecting with their own body, then the shoulders sink, the deficiencies get met and uh, they start treating themselves and you are truly what you are, which is the facilitator of the process. And the facilitator mm. is embodied, you know, like, and, and I, I will just say that again and again and again because I think it's really simple as well, this whole process. It's um, you, you, you really, really a part of you, your ego really wants that after 20 years, 25 years and 30 years of experience, your ego wants to, you know, run the 10-year course on, you know, like um, Scott Brisbane's bodywork and that it's got, you know, like a multi-tiers and multi-layers and, you know, like this is going to take you a long time to learn. No. Learn it now because it's, it's actually really, really simple. You've got to be with yourself. Got to, no, it's just, 
more and more and more. It's a great space, the practitioner space, the, the space of being with a client because you can kind of practice it you know, several times a week or whatever mm. and you really come home all the time, come home, come home, come back. And the other thing that that actually does is it creates this space for the person because you're not trying to do anything to the person. You're not trying to make anything happen. You're actually, the only thing you're really, really doing is actually being yourself and allowing the person to be, be themselves. And um, it's, it's, a, um, it's, it's a bad thing that our reality and the reality that we inhabit these days that doesn't allow that to happen more often. But this can happen, this can happen down on Brunswick Street. It can happen in the home. It can happen in any relationship with another person. You know, people are looking for real relationships if they know it or not, actually. And when they actually get it, it does heal them. And it doesn't have to be in the space where, you, you know, you're putting your hands on. You can be walking down Brunswick Street and you smile at someone and that creates a space for the other person. Or I know for me, when someone actually looks at you and smiles, mm. it's not that often that I experience it around here. But when that happens, you, there's a connection made with the person. Life comes, it comes to life. Mm. It's alive and it's it's not a therapeutic... Yes, we... I work in a therapeutic environment. However, the healing takes place anywhere. And just because you create a therapeutic environment doesn't mean any healing is going to take place. Mm. Now, there's no force required. And getting back to what Scott was saying with regards you know, to the back tension, tension is, in. if you break up intention, it, the two words are in tension. And we've learnt to do things in tension, intentionally to get an outcome of life should that be attentionally <laughs> that's happening too it's everything is done at te- at the level of tension hmm. once you're which which is part of the flight or fight response part of sympathetic arousal so what happens if we surrender and accept what's happening in life we accept the back that's tight and when you're able to come to a level, to a practitioner that works in that way, where you're talking about um, polishing the mirror, what I find in that, as, a, as an ex, I see it as an extension of what you're saying is, rather than when the, pra- the, the client looks at you, they just see you pretending to be something, once there's this clear mirror that you've polished through the process you just said, which I, and what I was talking about earlier, they're actually then able to see themselves. Hmm. They get to see themselves. And, the, and they, what I found also is that clients see facets of within you that they yet haven't seen in themselves. And in that I go, so if you're able to see this within me, because usually they'll also do... It's less often that people do positive reflections upon another person or they go, oh, they're better than me or they're this. So one of the aspects of creating that space is that the client gets to see themselves and they, I find they become more receptive to the aspect of 
what they're seeing is in them. Mm. So when they throw something at me or they verbalize something that they see in me, I'll follow that up with the fact that you're able to see that in me, I believe, tells me, or I believe, that's because that's in you. You can't see anything that's outside, that's not inside of you. And so that then gives them something, a different space to move into. Because most of us are, are more critical or of, of self rather than allow love to resonate within our own world, which then automatically goes out. It's not like, you know, I find we have this thing that love comes from, you know, something that someone else has or gives to us. And there's stepping stones, you know, when you fall in love, it's everything about the other person is magical. There's no shit on them. And then when you fall out of love, you fall, you you go, the falling in love's falling from the head into the heart. And then when we fall out of love, we go back into the head and then we start seeing the other person's, not, not so much their good stuff, but some of their shit too. And then eventually when we completely fall out of love, we go, oh, it's all shit. There's nothing positive about them. And so it's really easy to separate from any type of relationship. This isn't. This can be friendship, who you bank with, whatever. And we steady on. I don't bank with you. <laughs> <laughs> and I've just lost my train of thought. <laughs> it's really easy to see that, and eventually we get to find that what it is that's outside we're able to start seeing beauty whether it's within nature hopefully within other people too that once we've got to that point where we're able to see that it's it's because it's starting to resonate in us we're able to see the love that's in us all and to hold ourselves in that space of acceptance surrender of being whatever it is that we are and we're all unique, there's no book about each person, that we can be in that space and, it's, and, and you're okay with it. You don't have to be anything else. And that's what I found has taken me a long time in clinic, in a clinical environment oh, and in life too, <laughs> to get to the point where I can, there's this space here and a client can come in and experience in a therapeutic environment whatever it is that they're needing to satisfy themselves, not through me, for themselves. They, they find what it is that they're needing. What do they need to do for themselves that becomes nurturing? And they don't have to keep creating this tension because they're not satisfying or meeting these unconscious needs. They find it, like you said before. They actually self-discovery. They actually self-discover and f they find out what it is or they begin doing things. They don't have to know what it is. They actually do things that become satisfying. And so do you find, like, from what I'm hearing, you're saying that just being in this state and creating this opportunity for people to, you know, uh, experience this is the fundamental part of it. Um, in terms of, like, diagnosis or... Um, what the word is when you're checking to see 
if your treatment has been effective, things like this, you know, Hara and then Hara at the end or Pulse or what have you. Um, how important is that aspect of it to you? And and if it is important, what, what systems do you use or what theories do you use? And the so. diagnostic element? Diagnostic and then and then checking, I guess, midway or at the end as to how effective your treatment is. Okay. I would say the aspect of questioning and observation, how the client moves, when they pick up the phone, listening, listening to what they're saying, what they're not saying, what their problems are, the tone of their voice, the quality of their voice. So that's the first part. So every interaction I have with them, so it's a little bit harder nowadays because many people are doing text or email. So if it's, I'll start off with a new client, Mm. if it's a text or they've been referred by someone and they're wanting to make an appointment, what I begin to do is check in with myself, what am I experiencing? What, in this text I just read, what did I just pick up? What, what came towards me? I'll read the words and also feel what's written or what's not written as well. So I begin paying attention to whether I hold their name or hold a space. I, I just sit, close my eyes, take a few breaths and allow what what's resonating towards me from this person. Sometimes I get a hit, sometimes I don't. So that's at one level. Then <clears throat> the same will be when I pick up the phone. That gives me a much clearer sense of the person. I start getting senses from that, impulses from the person in the dialoguing, in the interacting. Did we connect? What happened in the booking? How did it flow? How did our energies intermingle and flow through? And then when I finally meet them, I allow, as if it's the first time, because it is the first time, what's happening? Being present and going, when I first meet them, what comes to me? As soon as I see them visually, what do I see? What do I feel? What comes towards me? So that's taking place at one level. And then there's beginning to look at, and this is now it's not happening at, a, at the level of thought. It's observing, looking at five elements and looking what, what are the relationship between the elements, between the client's organs? What's happening? Where are they, what, what are they presenting with? One of my, my, the first question I ask is, why are you here? Mm. Or what's brought you here? So I can begin unraveling or understanding their journey. Mm. And so that'll, so that's there. And then at the level of body work, it's getting a sense of a starting point. Usually I'll lay them as a, probably more so on their back. And I'll start with Hara um, diagnosis. However, sometimes I'll feel the clients a little defensive. They're not comfortable. Then I'll start them off. I'll work more on the back. There's more yang there. They'll feel more protect. They feel more protected. Or if they're feeling a little vulnerable, I'll turn them over. Apprehension, a sense of they're uncertain. I'll I'll put them. I'll lay them in a way that to me feels they'll feel less threatened by if that's something that's invoked so 
through the diagnosis and I'll find the patternings of empty full, I'll find the full and then find the QO that actually, not the emptiest deficiency, but the one that actually causes the jitsu to actually shift. So when you palpate, I'll palpate for the, the tensest, the hardest, the most reactive, the part that's obvious, the tense shoulders, anywhere that we're at in tension is very easy to feel because it's hard, it's reactive, it's usually tender, it's acute if you palpate firmly. And so once I find that point diagnostically, I'll then palpate the rest of the organs that are QO or empty and find which of those organs within the abdomen actually causes the jitsu to collapse. And then I'll go and work on that corresponding meridian. And uh, when you're saying palpating, so you're, you've got one hand on the jitsu and the other hand is going deep into the kyo or is it just resting on the kyo? It's actually finding which one responds. Even if you just do light pressure, the, the jitsu, that pulsing, will you, it's almost like all of a sudden it's gone. It actually collapses it. Now, you don't always get clear that palpable with some people it's really clear and with others i go it's very subtle so once i find that i'll then go to the to the empty meridian however if that meridian ends up being not empty then i'm going to modify my treatment so it's it's a little bit for me different to the aspect of taking pulse or tongue diagnosis where you see the the dysfunction or the disharmony and then you strategize to find to to bring it back into harmony for me the two aspects of duality which i i resonate with is that once you find the emptiness this bit will actually go doesn't mean you don't have to work on it what it means is you've found this action that the person's taking, you've found what they're trying to satisfy, the need, the unconscious need or what needs nurturing. So once you go to that, this actually shifts or changes. So you don't have to work on the hard shoulders. You can work on them. They're not, it's not right or wrong. What happens is you can treat the cure and then come back to the shoulders and you'll find actually already started shifting the person's already doing what they need to do for themselves and and the satisfaction it can be on a physical level immediately just through the treatment but do you also carry that into energetic too so it's first at an energetic level Uh and then when you go to the symptoms that are presented you'll be able to palpate and feel it at a physical level so yes they'll be able to feel it some people feel it are aware of energetics some people will feel it more at an energy, at a more at a physical level, but do you then uh, think about say the element and therefore the corresponding emotional stuff and and make like a psychological um, analysis of of what this person might be trying to satisfy and give that, or do you? If I get a hit on it, I will intuitively kind of yeah yeah. So I have logically to look at the relationship between organs and look at. 
sorry, the relationship between elements and look at what emotions may be involved uh-huh. if, the, if it's something that the client's open to as well. Yeah, sure. It's, it's not just me deciding to go there. Yeah. So I can, I can do that at an at a intellectual level. And I, I may not necessarily verbalise it. I may not need to verbalise it. If I've got a client, if there's a client who's in their head, mm. I don't need to add more stuff into it. So this is where this dance or relationship with the client starts taking place. It's an energetic dance that's taking place. So I can do the logical stuff or look at the philosophical aspect or the theory and go, okay, these are organs or elements that appear to me to be involved. And then there's what the client's shared. And then there's what have I picked up? So sometimes I'll bounce off the client and ask, you know, have you been feeling emotional? Have you been feeling a little bit irritable or frustrated? Um, Have you been short-tempered? Some will say no. And then that's it. It's finished. Do they say that abruptly? (laughs) No. Not always. No. (laughs) They're usually nice. (laughs) Clients are nice. (laughs) Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. So so I I have diagnostic skills. What I find has taken me longer to refine is to understand the dance of the energetics within the, the human being. That's, to me, what takes... That's an experiential one. I don't... You can't get that out of books... Um, maybe through, and you can learn it through life experiences. It's not just in a therapeutic environment. It's how we relate to human beings when we're conscious. What is, this is going quite a bit off topic, but now I'm curious. You said earlier that you know you were uh, interested in philosophy or certain. I guess I got the impression you're talking about certain spiritual things or concepts from an earlier age than some people. Where did that? Where did that start? And I know that you spent time in a monastery and stuff. No, is it? Did I just Nothing insert that? Oh man, I inserted <laughs> this memory of you, of you spending time, like a few months somewhere, um, as a monk or something. Uh, I probably lived a lot of my life that way. <laughs> oh, there you go. That's hilarious. In a, but within a, this world, in, within a city, I spent a lot of time alone growing up on a farm, so I spent. A lot of time on my own, uh-huh. so working on the farm, so doing what needed to be done, and it was usually alone. It, it's only when we came together we had a poultry farm when all the eggs were graded. Otherwise, you pretty much you worked on your own. You did what had to be done, and I used to do all the work. We had six acres. I used to do all the work out, cutting grass, gardening fencing that stuff so I spent a lot of time in nature observing the climate observing the seasons the rhythms of life and contemplating so I I began to contemplate questions of life from a very young age so I had a lot of solitude from young and I've had that through my life so I haven't apart from short spaces of different um Meditations where I've spent a week, 10 days in um, two weeks in meditation. 
the time there has been a lot of time of solitude that I found in that I've I've had to look at aloneness and loneliness which are really I think huge traits that we actually have to bring to con- our consciousness and to deal with to actually acknowledge they exist and also to be comfortable in the difference between loneliness and aloneness that loneliness for me is where I'm separate to everyone else and I don't like my company I don't like who I am whereas for me aloneness is where you've come you've 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 looked into loneliness you've delved into the the darkness or the shadow that that can invoke and bring up and you've come to a point where you're okay with it you, you and then, and you also like yourself so you're okay being alone hmm. even though we aren't really alone we're, we're social creatures we interact with human beings however as a way of discovering self looking at that loneliness which is very easy to sort of push away because you can just fill it yeah you can fill it with food drink um relationships friendships going out whatever working anything podcasts podcasts (laughs) everything in life chocolate yeah sugar everything we're still solving your uh chocolate Addiction yeah. problem. We'll be solving no, no, it for it was, a while. I'll tell you what. <laughs> it was sugar, wasn't it? I thought it was sugar. Not oh, chocolate. Well, it, it was sugar, but chocolate's definitely uh, one of the key key players in the uh, in the game. So I had a lot of time on my own contemplating, hmm. and for for some reason there was I had someone a, a school friend who was close, and we just used to sit up questioning life questioning how life runs what what is life about Mm. from early teens and we'd spend up literally all hours of the night talking until we fell asleep yeah you were one strange dude you know like early teens and you were you were working out life yeah 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 Yeah, very good it was actually bizarre because the other thing i didn't do is in my spiritual trip i put aside women because i figured i can do i can play sport I can study, and they were my two things, and spirituality was my third. So that was my triumvirate, my, my, my three cornerstones that I could do. But what I also did was I cut out women from within my life in terms of not going into relationships with them. So I had friendships, and all my, most of my friends were actually women. But what I was very naive on, I didn't realise, was that in that only desiring friendship, you actually open up and are quite... You, you develop friendships with women and they, they, they open up to you. And then once that happens, there's a potential for things beyond that. Because I wasn't desiring it at all, I just stopped it at, I'm on a spiritual journey, I'm not into sex or anything... What I found was I keep, these women kept coming into my life and I had lots of friends and then it got to a point and then they kept disappearing. And it wasn't until my 30s and 40s I look back and go, oh my God, I didn't, I missed the signals. I had no idea on the subtleties of these women were, were desire, some of them were desiring 
the re- uh, the relationship to actually go further. I had no idea because I was on my such is the life of the spirit. <laughs> so in that, I made a decision about something which later in life I came back to and had to deal with aspects of sexuality that were a big part of things that I thought were non spiritual. When it actually, it's actually all one and the same. Yeah. So. What I did was spent a lot of time with that contemplation and developing relationships with the opposite sex that wasn't, at that time, it wasn't actually sexual. Mm. And what I found, it's, it's made a huge difference later in life because once you get to know someone, one, you can build the foundation. All long-term relationships for me are built on friendship, even your intimate ones. But once sex comes in, if that comes in before friendship, it's really hard mm. to actually build this foundation to where you have two individuals walking a journey. Even though you're hand in hand, you're actually walking your own journey. You know, you're not joined at the waist. Mm. You're, you're in a relationship, but you still walk your own individual pathway. So I sort of digressed a little bit on, no. on the question that you were asking. That was a really big part of where learning about where learning about other people, but particularly the opposite sex, because I think it's really confusing. We throw sex into something and it, it becomes, it gets really confusing. So as I've dialogued a lot with my children, which early on they thought, you know, Dad, you don't talk about this. Fathers don't talk about this stuff with their children and as they've gotten moved from their early teens to their later teens and beyond now they see the value where they go ah now I know what you're talking about because what they've been able to do is separate sex and relationships they can bring them together if they need to but they're actually able to hold the space where they're comfortable in themselves Whereas I look back on myself and I go, maybe I knew a lot about what I thought spirituality and about life, but I hadn't yet dealt with my shadow, my things that were inside in me still unconscious. So I found nurturing the relationships early on in my life, so not only with female friends, and excuse me, but also others, whoever I dealt with, what, what it allowed me to do is when I stepped into the relationship with women in a therapeutic environment, the aspect of getting really clear on sex, that the two were, there's, there was no intermingling. It was just clear. It had been dealt with. And it allowed me to go very quickly to a much deeper level to the point where it was really hard to un- explain to people what, what's going on because I'd spent all that time in my youth and up to my late 20s where spirituality was my pathway and there was no mixing of... I, I just blocked out sex. But it really opened a doorway to going... to meeting someone of the opposite sex and actually meeting them completely as a human being, as a whole. And so if that, I give thanks to. I still had to deal with all the other stuff after. I just did it much later... 
I think, than most people well, deal with. It's interesting you say all this because recently uh, what's happened is that I spontaneously just sort of went celibate for a few months and I wasn't really that interested in, in masturbation and I wasn't that particularly interested in sex. I still did hook up with somebody in that period, but whatever, it just kind of dropped off. Then it re-emerged. But then since going to the ashram and coming back, um, I was seeing someone I had a love for the first couple of months from coming back. But again, just this whole focus on sexuality just dropped off completely. Um, and I started, I guess, realising that I'd kind of I, I had to demonize it in a little way, or at least I had, like I said, separated it and, and sort of taken the value away from it. Um, but also I realized that I'm actually quite, I'm afraid of sex in a lot of ways in terms of um, like, like I say, the consequences of it in terms of relationships. Like I know that once, once that happens, everything can change and, and there's a whole different dynamic going on. And that I believe that there's a real power to it. Like you, there's some energetic, as soon as I, I've had sex with a person, that's an energetic bond that is, it doesn't go away, even if I don't have feelings for them or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious as to, I guess, why in which you separated them and you told, what, the, what was the philosophy that was going on at the time in which you did separate it and how have you reconnected it was it just purely through that relationship or that's a really big question I'm going to try to concise it I would say the an early influence for me was I was I'll say religious in that I went to church quite a lot so one was where you went to church because the family went to church and then at a point I'd go where I consciously chose to go to church, not because my parents went, I actually wanted to be there. What denomination was that? It was Greek Orthodox. Greek Orthodox. So the the aspect of church was, it was strong. Everyone went to church. So the family unit, there was a time when the family unit was very strong and the whole the family went to church. It was all the part. So family and church were, I'd say, were a very big part of my life. And I'm sure through the influences of family and hearing the dialogue about sex and you got to know the rules about the value judgments about sex and different things in life. And that impacted on me. I'm sure I took it on because at that time, there was a time that I thought sex was an unspiritual practice. No one, there wasn't anyone that consciously told me that, whether it's church or individuals or I'd read it. I took that on. Not sure where from. I, 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 put the, I decided to put the two together hmm. uh, for whatever reasons. I, I'd, quite unconscious at that time. Is that like the, uh, the, uh, the separation of the body from... What, what do they separate the body from? The spirit, I guess, is it? Soul, spirit. Yeah, and that the soul and the spirit are the goodies and the body is the baddie. Is that right? And yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. the body has bodily fluids like semen and other you know, like uh, nasties. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, like um, sex would be of the body. Uh, 
And from that, as I began my readings into different things way outside of Orthodox Greek or Christian, so I read a lot about Christianity, but I also began reading a lot about outside, so Buddhist, um, Taoist, um, and I, for some reason, because that was in me, I when I read bits about that, that the sex is bad and it's unspiritual, I go, yep, see, affirmation. Uh, so I, I became yeah. a self-fulfilling prophecy, which I kept finding this stuff. And because I was doing so much reading, it kept coming to me. So it got fairly deeply entrenched in my psyche about keeping the two separate. Mm. However... And then it was okay once I got married. It was okay to include the two. So I would have been in huge conflict because on the one hand I'm going it's unspiritual and then on the other hand I go, oh, it's okay in wedlock. I go, what a contradiction, <laughs> which I didn't realise till afterwards. But that was, that was a, what's the word, not a conflict. Um, a paradox I was carrying. Contradiction. I was living a contradiction. So it, I, that's what I remember of it in influencing me at that time. And fun, and I don't know why, at that time I was also exposed to Tantra and Taoist sexology. This was, I'd say, early 80s. So I would have been in my 20s. So I was still celibate. And yet I was starting to do Tantra and Taoist courses, practical courses. And it was like, yet it was okay for me. I felt okay. Well, that wasn't a conflict. But I still had the conflict that you, know, you can't have sex. So it was just these practices. I go, it's okay to do the practices. So for some reason I was drawn to this. And yet at the same time I go, I put a, you know, this is the limitation of it. You can't go into physical intimacy this is all about energetics because the energetics are still spiritual they're not dirty there's no semen <laughs> there's no so when you, when you say Taoist and tantric practices are you talking about with another person like breathing techniques and stuff or is this internal yeah, yeah, circulations both, or both yeah okay and breathe and going into breathing techniques and with single women where it wasn't it wasn't sexual yeah there was no there was no I don't know if it's a contradiction. There was no, it was there was no sex. Yeah, it was actually just the disciplines of these practices. Mm. So I got that was a large part of, or I spent a lot of time studying that, and that was almost like a contradiction to the the Christian aspect, where it's like, uh, uh-uh, you can't do it. So that part, and again, I'm I'm cons- cons- consolidating this where it probably wasn't. I'll say till in my 30s and I'll say more late 30s where I go, I became clearer and started acknowledging because I'd suppressed things about physicalness because they were less than, they were unspiritual and so forth, where I go, I had to acknowledge about this is how I felt. There were all these things about matrix, um, patriarchal control and I thought I was way above those because I wasn't into um I didn't do that and then when I saw it in myself that was that was probably one of the biggest shocks of my life when because I I had lots of friends around me 
close female friends that would actually were comfortable telling me things. So if I said something and they just go, no, that's bullshit, Con. They go, what are you talking about? So I had a lot of close friends who were really good mirrors Mm. that threw straight back at me something where I go, oh, no, I'm above that, where they just turn around and go, oh, no, you do that with your partner. I go, what? I was in absolute shock. I I was in (laughs) such denial. I was unable to see the where I was in my relationship with my partner about where I was controlling. Mm. And that was one of the probably the biggest rockings of my foundation and of my spiritual and sexual foundation where I, I suddenly saw my behavior and I go, all these things I've been in denial that I think I thought other men did. I thought... Oh, you're a bastard too, Con. You you actually think the same. You've just been welcome in denial. Thank you. <laughs> I became a man, <laughs> and and that was that was it was both enlightening and devastating. I was yeah. absolutely devastated and shock. I was in so much shock to to think that I wasn't this puritanical being. I was the only puritanical spiritual being walking around humanity. Like, what an arrogance that is. And to to then begin to acknowledge that I go, oh, my goodness, I do this. I'm actually doing this. This is what I do with my partner or when I raise my voice or you do this. And I go, I had to own it. And that was huge. That was that was scary because I, I it brought me down off this pedestal that I'd put myself up on because I thought I was above because I was more spiritual, it it actually brought me back into in touch with me and all of humanity. So I'd say there was this arrogance there that I go, I, I couldn't, I really couldn't see it. And I probably took two weeks from when someone told me where I go, nah. And I kept reflecting on it and reflecting on it. And then as it comes to me and then the realisation of, and then to be able to see it, and I go, oh, my goodness. I began to see these things in my life that okay, I, wasn't, I wasn't aware I was doing. So that was, talk about, you know, my, my concrete foundation was just shifting sands. It, it obliterated a lot of things about spirituality. And then I then came full circle through acknowledging what it was that's inside me and dealing with that to actually come back and go they're actually the same there's no it was me who was making a separation between them with spirituality whatever whatever it is for someone and our sexuality there's actually how do you separate it they're actually the same thing the the i or who i am is a part of spirit and i'm also part of matter and to actually normalize it or to to accept it that this is what it is these are my impulses this is how i feel it's not less than and it's not greater than it just is so that was a i don't know as, as a pathway that was quite a long one that started from young when i separated um, sexuality from spirituality and until the point where i 
I came to a relative peace of acknowledging all this shadow side that I go, oh. And most of life, because that's probably the most suppressed part of our, our world, I would, I, would, I, I would look at is that an individual who has put, made sex up to be something, until you've delved into your, the, I'll say your unconsciousness in that area, that's where that's impulsing in the rest of our life. It's just that we don't realize it's happening. So that's been a really big journey, even though the flip to that is I've sort of had to keep it to myself and to talk. There's very few people to actually open up and dialogue about it because people go, whoa, yeah, this is getting too close. It's pushing buttons. Whereas now with people that are around me and friends that I have, you can talk about it. It's not taboo. And even clients, I can make it really light where you just bring it up in, in a conversation if it feel if it's something that I feel might be impacting on the person and has come about as a dialogue, I'll go into it with the person. Whereas before I'm going, oh, God, I don't want to talk about this. This is really uncomfortable. So I found I had to get comfortable talking about whatever it was, talking about how I feel, talking about sex, talking about relationship with my partner, my family, friends, everything, all, all those bits that people are really uncomfortable with. So that was a, that's, a, that's been a big part of what I found has allowed me to be, to have, what's the word, equanimity within clinics. So whether it's a male or a female client, whether they're gay, whether they're heterosexual, whether they're bi, whatever they define themselves, I can actually hold that space. That doesn't matter who they are. That's not who they are. That's just defining possibly their sexual preferences. It does not define who it is that they are. So I find I can, that's helped me hold the space because I found the judgment that's involved with sex in our, in, in our life, and particularly amongst, I'll say, within practitioners and therapists, there's a lot of value judgment. And I found you, you get attacked when you start going into these areas where people go, no, 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 that's for a sex therapist or that's for a, psych, a psychologist. Where I go, so where, at what point did we split the human being? You know, which practitioners got to work with spirit, which got to work with soul, which got to work with the physical body? What, are we putting all these, someone's made claims to it? So the, the bringing that all together for me was important for my personal journey. And I found it, it has actually helped lots of clients get comfortable in themselves through their own, them journeying into that. So I don't know if I've gone off on a tangent. Or... No, no, it, that's like I said at the start, the, the tangents are the best bits usually anyway. Um, but uh, with the sexual thing, it's interesting because there's intimacy in shiatsu and we've spoken about this before with, with some of the other podcasts. Um, and for me, I struggled with that initially. And again, it's interesting after the ashram, there was a period where it, it just didn't seem to be such a big deal. This idea of whether or not they were attracted to me or I was to them or these thoughts were arising. I think I spoke to you about it at one point in terms of even if these thoughts are arising, that they're not me. 
and they're not what's actually going on here remain remain present i think that was your main advice at the time was if you're if you're going there you're not you're probably not present you're probably imagining something or creating some situation in your mind um but also i mean i want to uh work with children and and do workshops and stuff and and bring shiatsu to all these different places um so i'm very careful about the perception of what i do in relation to sexuality i was um a little while ago i was asked to um do a workshop for an event and the way that the event was being promoted um to me had sexual connotations to it and even into particular to my workshop and i was unhappy with it and i i we ended up I, uh it didn't go ahead my workshop they didn't go ahead because we couldn't come to a, an agreement that um it was the way i was being portrayed was a little bit too sexual um but yeah it's like part of me wants to to not care about that and i feel like there should be just this i wish our, i mean it's a cultural thing really isn't it like i wish if our culture was less <laughs> um repressed and oppressed and um just ignorant about and deluded about what's actually going on uh in terms of sexuality then we could talk about it more with our clients and such i have here in japan apparently there's it's quite clear like for there's prostitution and there's sexual workers and stuff like that and then there's everybody else and for a man to touch another man or these various different things in a therapeutic environment it's that's not sex like before you know unless genitals are touching each other like <laughs> oh, in our society yeah it's it's, it's not sex so but yeah so i don't know it's it's very it's tricky and um I don't even really have a question in regards regards to that, but um, yeah, I mean, sexuality is a, a difficult one with, with our attraction. There was the hint of uh, what you were just talking about at the start of that—that um, that, uh, you were wondering what to do with attraction, and um, it kind of like uh, exploded in my mind a little bit about you know like what happens with attraction with uh, a client towards the practitioner or the practitioner towards the client. And um, I was wondering if you'd come across this con and uh, how you handle the situation or whether it's something that you don't need to handle or, or, or what? It's something that's happened not only in a client-therapist relationship where I've this, it's happened with the, the client being attracted to me. I've also had it happen with students in a like a workshop, a seven-day uh, shiatsu retreat, where it became obvious to me that one of the students began developed an attraction. So first, I'll go early on. What I used to do early on was I'd first look at what is it that I've done, because I always used to make it about me. So that was my first point of call. And then after reflecting on myself, contemplating, and then also asking others, as in other practitioners, about what's going on. So I found there was a lot of beginning to dialogue because there's not many people you can actually go to with um, when, when this happens. Or at the time, I'm talking about 20 years ago, when I um, first started lecturing. 
So what if I feel it, to me that's real. And what I will do is if I find it's it's affecting the client practitioner relationship, I'll actually verbalize I'll actually bring it up in conversation with the dialogue with the client involved. So for me, now I'll I'll go I'll hold my space. If I get to the point as a practitioner, I can't hold my space because I've been thrown for whatever reason, whether I'm uncomfortable in it, that I can't stay neutral and feel their projection and still hold that space neutrally, then I'd stop the, the stop seeing the, I'd stop seeing the client. So that's at one point. The other one I've I've had to go within is look at or contemplate is there something that I'm adding to this? Have I invoked this within a client? So looking at myself neutrally, looking at the the touch that I've done, has my touch moved away from a therapeutic touch and moved into sensual or sexual touch? And for me, those three are quite clear. The difference between therapeutic, sensual and sexual. The, the, the intent behind them is vastly different. So when I ask that in class, <coughs> excuse me, when I bring it up with a class that hopefully has similar numbers of men and women in it, where I talk about if I throw that question out to the women, I'll go, is there any difference? Or actually, I ask the guys first. I go, guys, is there any difference or what are, are, what are the differences, if there are any, between therapeutic touch, sensual and sexual? And some of the guys actually hit a wall and go, oh, I don't know, what are the differences? Whereas when I ask a woman that, rarely do I hear anything except crystal clear what the three differences are. I'll go, completely easy to define if a practitioner's touching me in a therapeutic, sensual or sexual way. Okay, well, I want to understand this better because one that I that I think is the blurriest for me is I'll be working uh, the eyebrows and I'll use my thumbs to sort of palpate, you know, right on the eyebrows through the bladder line and then I'll, I'll come to the edge of the, um, the hairline and I'll work through the, hair, the head with, with my just sort of, I guess it's the classic technique, the Namakoshi stuff. Um, but then one thing I love to do is just to run my fingers through the hair, just like right through and and in that moment every time I have this like I mean sometimes as a friend or whatever I don't care so much but I have this feeling of how are they interpreting this and I know how good that feels and I know I think therapeutically it has an an amazing effect because when I'm treating my own head that's one of the first things I'll do is just run my fingers through my hair and just let all that chi you know uh, move Um, but yeah like in that moment I'm not attempting to be sensual, uh, but still, how is it interpreted by them? Do you think as long as as my intention is therapeutic, that's enough? Or 
you still have to be aware of what you're doing in the therapeutic environment. And if you're in your space, I believe you'll be aware of what the client starts doing with it. Because if they start sexualizing touch, the chi moves differently. Yeah, there's, there's, there's sexualizing touch, but there is also um, sensuality with touch. And um, I was thinking about disagreeing with you from the point of view of there being the three, as in uh, was it uh, therapeutic, sensual and sexual, whereas I kind of feel like um, not all of our therapeutic touch is um, uh, sensual, but uh, I wouldn't necessarily uh, shy away from that. Um, I think that touch is of the senses. I think that um, it's beautiful. I think that the running of the hands or the fingers through the hair, it's like, wow, can that really, really ground a person therapeutically because it's maybe filling that need to have their head touched and um, there, there's other things that come here. I, I remember a discussion with a massage teacher and he, he, he um, threw, threw the questions out there as far as uh, what parts of the body are um, sensual, stroke, sexual. And um, with the idea of perhaps we should avoid them. But like um, the questions started coming back from the students that, you know, like any part of the body could potentially be sensual, sexual. And uh, I think this is a good thing to talk about because I'm really interested in it, but, like, I'm not um, claiming any expertise in the area. Well, but uh, I think a word that's come up before is tenderness. And uh, to me, uh, the idea of uh, a mother's touch, um, so, like you look at the way a mother or a father uh, touches their children. Uh, If you're in a society that's really concerned about pedophilia, you could label a whole bunch of that sexual. Um, And I think that's the pathology of our society. And similarly with with the treatments, like, um, I want to be tender. Like I mean, if I, I don't want that's just that's just my nature. Like I am I am tender. That's the way that I I touch people generally, and uh, in terms of fulfilling, like you say, satisfying these needs, a lot of people that come to us and myself um, are lacking that touch. I can tell that's that's the massive part is people aren't touching them tenderly, leaving their partners or whatever. So not only physical. This is also as a metaphor for spiritual and touch at a soul level these these, we're not just physical beings Mm. so and we can touch people with our words with the way we smile so the physical touch is only one aspect of that tenderness so when you run your hands through people's hair you're it's a different. It's not just a physical experience. On, on my way to a workshop this morning, I was a little bit early, so I found myself in you know that uh, kind of eating place around about Flinders Street. It comes comes off Flinders Street and the Graves. Yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah, like um, and there was a uh, a girl, Katerina, 
um, playing the violin. And uh, I kind of walked past her the first time and I went, oh, yeah, nice. And then I um, asked somebody where the toilets were and I went up to the toilets. And I'm in the toilets and I can hear her playing the violin and I went, oh, really nice. And I've got a spare 15 minutes before the workshop and before meeting my friend. And um, so I went back and I sat on the step next to her and I engaged with her about um, what she was playing, etc. And she said, what would you like me to play? And I said, oh, just break my heart. (laughs) Yeah, a small request, you know. (laughs) But, you know, like she uh, gleefully and happily um, proceeded to do so, you know, like uh, it took a little while because she, um, uh, it was a little bit cold and her one of her strings was kept on um, going slightly out of tune, you know, like, and she didn't like that. But, um, yeah, she she played one of her favourite pieces from a movie called The Mission, which uh, is, uh, like, I, I couldn't quite work out whether I'd seen this movie or not, actually. Mission? The, the Mission. Mission. The yeah. Mission. Set in um, South America. Yeah, and it's, a, and it's, a, it's, a, it's about a, a quest. Missionaries. Yeah. Who go to... Convert the pagans. Anyway, she did play it well enough and I listened well enough and the connection between us was good enough for the moment to happen and she broke my heart. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. Did she get a bit of change in the uh, violin case? Yeah, of course, you know. know, I think she would have done well this morning actually. You know, it was a nice fibre in that place. I I was um, disappointed that I had to leave actually.
Well, um, that's made me think about music in terms of uh, of clinic treatments. I remember. Well, oh, sorry, sorry, Link. So yeah, the link there is that uh, she touched me. And I guess, you know, like um, uh, my kind of um, openness, I was feeling very open walking to there, was, uh, you know, we touched each other. And, um, yeah, it's another diversion because there's been some interesting saucy little bits here. So, sorry, Link, I was... No, yeah. no, no. Was there somewhere you were... I don't know. No, no, but like I, you, you, you had another question. Well, yeah, I'm just. I mean, is there anything else that you wanted to? Only to go up? back to yeah. the aspect of the original question. Yeah, yeah, please do. So, when it comes up, I, I verbalise it, and I actually one example was there was one client who I knew before, who I knew before she became a client, that I I felt this attraction from her. And she just said, no, it's not there. So I let it go. She, she kept, um, she came for about another 12 months, 18 months. And I began feeling that attraction again of her being attracted to me. And she also felt in a very different space. So during the session, again, I asked, I'm feeling this again. This, I'm feeling that there's an attraction, and I can't remember exactly how. I go, is that your experience or is that true for you? Is it garbage? And she goes, yes, it's true. And she was able to go, and it happened before, but she, because of how she felt about it, she felt guilty and whatever else all these different emotions, that it was wrong, it was bad, it shouldn't be happening, I was a married man, and so forth. So in that, she was able to acknowledge how she felt. And because I didn't make anything about it, that it was bad, it was like I was I was bringing it up because that's what I was feeling in the session. And that shifted for her. And Con, what about the other way around where, you know, like uh, attraction is what um, is one of the main forces in the universe, you know, like uh, when we buy a car, we presumably buy it because we're attracted to it, you know, when we buy a computer, you know, like uh, I I like that one. And um, it's not necessarily something that, um, you know, we might be able to intellectualise it. So when someone walks in the door and we're attracted to them, um, where are you with that? So I've found, I've had clients that I've found very physically attractive and I've also connected with at a deep level and I feel I can hold that space. I don't have to do anything else with it. I don't have to sexualize it. I find I can hold that space in a therapeutic environment and it can continue. But I, I don't feel a need to do anything else with it to evolve it into anything else. So stop seeing them and go whatever it is that I desire. There, there isn't anything else. I can sit in my... I can acknowledge an attraction. I can stay conscious in that attraction for another human being, for, I'll say for a woman. And 
not I don't have to I don't have to sexualize it or do anything else in my mind any in my imagination with it and still hold that space and uh, to to challenge you a little bit further, have you come across the situation where the attraction was mutual? So that's that's gone both ways, and I, that and that was okay with with and that came up. So I that was dialogued. That I felt there was an attraction. I felt attracted to the client. The client also felt attracted to me, and we were able to continue in a client-therapist relationship. Nothing else had to come about it. How and when did you uh, communicate that? When did you create that dialogue? Oh, during a session. Probably close to the end. While you were still treating, the like touching the person? Uh, At the end of a session. After I'd hands off. After taking my hands... So finishing hands-on or energy work and then dialoguing. So sharing with them at the end, this is what I felt, this is what I'm feeling. And also because of the openness of the dialogue, it was very easy to move into that with the client because she had been very open. So it was actually really easy to, to go into it in that space because she, she, was, she was clear herself. She, was, she could actually hold her space as a client, feel the attraction and not have to do anything else. And so it was reciprocated. For me, I could hold that space, excuse me, feel that attraction, still work as a practitioner and still be present and centred. However, getting to that point, I had to clear a lot of other stuff so I'm answering that question now to you with the experience of having gone through that a few times. Well, you had to clear a bunch of stuff. What do you mean? On my journey. Like your personal yeah. relationship to sex and, and yeah. relationships and things. So being able to, to stay and hold that space, feel myself being attracted, feel her attracted to me... And I can still stay centred. So with regards to what we were talking about um, uh, when, uh, you're, you're, when you were younger, uh, in your 20s, and being spiritual and friendly, but um, completely turning off your sexuality, um, that's quite different to what's actually happening now. I would say that now you actually do pick up the subtleties and the cues from those that are attracted to you. It, it's, and before it was coming from a point of fear, I was afraid of what might happen. So did you pick it up back then as well? No, I was really naive. You were b- naive oblivious. or blocked? Oblivious and blocked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely blocked. You didn't pick it up at all. I had no idea, Scott. I had some women tell me and I go... Are you serious? So you picked it up in retrospect when you looked back on no. it. Oh, yeah. This, yeah. Like 10, 20 years later. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm trying to work out why these women are disappearing once it got to a good friendship. And then I go, oh, my God. But that took me <laughs> two decades. Hmm. That wasn't an overnight thing. 
Yeah, so tell tell me, um, you kind of alluded before that, you know, like um, there was a separation of spirit and body back then, but you must have been interested in body work because you have been a body worker for a, for a long time. And um, the body and sex are obviously really closely related. Um, I was just wondering, you know, like what was going on like back then with regards to body work, sex and spirituality? What was going on? Yeah, especially not so much with the spirituality part of it, you know, like if we are separating these things, and that's just arbitrary, of course, but especially body work and sexuality because um, it seems like you kind of got into body work and you kind of got into sexuality and they were kind of happening because you went to those tantra classes and you were obviously moving towards shiatsu. And that uh, was before body work. That was before way body before. work. Yeah, way before. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. that's interesting, isn't it? So that would have been... I was in my 20s. Yeah, but were you in your body? I was... Oh, I had a... This is in hindsight and reflection mm, now. Of course. My current perception. I felt I had a very good sense of my body. Yeah. I did a lot of... I played a lot of sport and I pushed myself quite a bit. And felt I could, I managed and looked after myself really well. So I, I ate very well. I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I didn't do drugs. I didn't do sex. Were you connected to it? To my body? Yeah. I felt I was connected to my body. I paid attention to it. Okay. Even though I'd... Supr- Did this- you feel it? Oh, yeah. I was you very could- highly sensitive in my body. Okay. Always. Or... And these, these, these. Um, uh, so therefore, you know, like, what, what did did not the blockages with regards to the um, that separation of sexuality from your life and your being, did they not reside in the body? Like I might think they would. I didn't have anything at a physical level that I had really good health. So I, I, I'm not aware of an impact where that separation created an energetic blockage. It, it was subtleties of things that I felt. There wasn't anything where I go, I, I was pretty healthy. I, I looked after myself. I, I ate very well. I rested really well. I used to have body work, which you know, back thirty years ago there weren't many, not many people in their teens. Hmm. Yeah. No. I'm just. I'm trying to body work. And are you doing yoga? And I'm trying to draw together kind of the, the threads of that separation of body and spirit when you were younger, and um, also the the thread where you just made decisions to actually start playing sport and uh, to uh, do something. Um, positive with your body and obviously you were sensitive in your body and you were sensitive energetically um, and the um, the sex stuff which is also you know like uh, it's it's a lot of things but it's also extremely physical um, yeah I find it interesting I find I find it interesting that 
you turn this thing off, man, you know, like, and... Uh, well, it never turned on. <laughs> Seriously. It, yeah, because you it turned actually, it off young. Yes. So I'd actually been reading... About, Osho writes about a lot of... If, if meditation was taught to teenagers or to children, what he was seeing is that if you're able to do that, you find a part of yourself that normally people only find when they go and have sex because it's a profound experience. Yeah. And so what that tends to happen is they then attach the sex to the profound experience and it becomes outside of them. Mm. Yeah. So he was talking about if an individual's able to find what they experience here within, then when they come into sex or sexuality... It's not outside of them. No. It's not the other person where I've got to have sex to get my hit or I need drugs to have a hit. So because of, because of this uh, kind of like a connection with spirituality when you were younger, was that kind of like pre-puberty? Because I was wondering how you kind oh, of yeah. cope. Way cope, before puberty. Way before puberty. So, yep, yep. so therefore, you know, like um, uh, masturbation wasn't a part of your life? Nope. Wow. It, it, Double wow. It, it wasn't a part of it. Hmm. It didn't do anything. I, I never went into it. I didn't know. And, uh, but, but presumably... I saved my kidney cheek. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you did a good job, man. Sorry, just to, this is the hilarious... The, the interesting thing about our culture uh, is that it is a wow for me and Scott because to me the idea that you weren't masturbating like I was very sexual um, as a young person and started masturbating and was very uh, enthusiastic about it Um, but our culture has that in it it has has this relationship to sexuality and and I guess a a lack of respect for like I was talking to my my, somebody I know um, about sexuality and, and ejaculation and things like that and how, you know, that creates life. Like, it, like you can literally create a whole other human being through that. That is the creative process. Yeah, and... and that's instilled in us, absolutely. And to, to masturbate, to, you know, ejaculate, that's, that's shooting out this, this substance that's in your body that is fundamentally... Uh, that creates life. It, it's so massive and so powerful. But our society, I guess, doesn't really... What a potent life force. We're talking yes, about so forces so before. So, yes. Is there anything, any essence, that is more concentrated than the jing that comes out that allows new life to spring forth. How extraordinary is that? To me, that's profound. Hmm. That absolutely, I have amazing reverence for it. So I'm still continuing with puberty (laughs) themes. And I was wanting to know, you know, like, because it it is quite foreign to me. I was um, pretty much uh, a dedicated wanker. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Still am, yes, I know. <laughs> it's a wanker's anonymous. <laughs> but um, uh, so, like, uh, what when when 
girls go through puberty, they get their first period. And when boys go through puberty, there's a number of physical changes that occur in their body, uh, of course. But um, one of them seems to be that they, they ejaculate at some stage as well, and they have their first ejaculation. And, and that... I presume was uh, during your uh, wet wet dreams. Yeah, nocturnal emissions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what did you think about that? I just found it was we actually in I'm trying to think what year it was, in in year nine, we actually had sex education. So, and with a teacher who was really open with it, and and shared not not just out of a book he actually shared from the heart and normalized sex so i already had this as a grounding before i started nocturnal emissions so i by the time it started happening i already knew about it at a mental level it wasn't happening and then i go what's going on so it's like I had the found, I had I had an awareness of what was happening. But were there were they sexual dreams that would lead to the emissions? And oh, I can't remember. I was just wondering Jeez. if it was something that you'd feel guilty about when you woke up. And you, <laughs> oh, I've got enough things to feel guilty about. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, jeez. Well, you can, you can feel guilty about it because it's so messy, you know, like it's kind of... Um... Oh, yeah, well, look, you're uncomfortable in it. Yeah, it, yeah, it, you so have to you're move. you're waking up. It's not like you walk around. You can't walk around in your pyjamas or something it's 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 obvious to others so there was self-consciousness definitely guilt i don't know i can't recall yeah that was like i don't know i can't answer that question any more than that i'd say it would have been there because it's in other aspects so it's i'd go most probably but I'm not aware of it at the moment. But because I did guilt with other things, I, I'm sure I did it. It would have been done with this too. And where are you? Where are you at now in terms of like? It sounds like you've gone through. You've obviously read a whole bunch of different philosophies and things. Do you um, feel that you're? Do you lean in a certain direction towards a religion like a Buddhism or a, a philosophy or a practice, or if you kind of just created your own or? There are there's aspects of Christianity that I resonate with. So things that have to do with love and they resonate with my heart, I accept I, I feel I can accept them. So it's not so much a religion. So I can the aspect of Christianity, I'm open to. Taoism, I'm very open to. So having, whatever it's been, nearly oh, 30 years since I, I started reading about Taoism, but I didn't know what it was. I, I felt it, but I, if you asked me to explain it to you back then, I'd go, I don't know, it doesn't make sense. It was like reading mumbo jumble, but I related to it. Mm. It's like I had an affinity for it. So it's not so much a religion that a particular religion. To me, all religions uh, just reflect different parts of the, of the one. So there isn't any that I go are better. And 
the other one I feel at the moment is that religions are a stepping stone. That if there was to be, if you asked me a religion and I had to give you an answer, I'd go nature. At the moment, nature's, I'd go nature is my religion. Because in that, I see what I see in nature is something that isn't logical, it isn't intellectual, and it's something that I connect with at a deeper level than just with thinking. Hmm. So I've always resonated with nature. Whether it's having a garden, whether it's having fruit trees, putting you know, the seeds in the ground to me is, is, a, is a, a micro of the macro. And in that, you can experience beauty, you can experience life, and also the creative aspect and rhythm of life that I've always related to. So I, I don't have a religion as such that I'd go, I'm Greek Orthodox or I'm this or I'm that, that I define myself as now. However, each of them have contributed significantly. I've, I've drawn so much from each of them. Well, yeah, this has been uh, wonderful as usual. Um, I'm really grateful that we got to do this. So thank you so much, Con. Thank you for asking. Um, yeah. And I- I'm honoured that you asked. <laughs> oh, great. And um, yeah, I'd love to do it again sometime if you guys are keen. Um, and yeah, thank you again, Scott. Cheers. Wonderful to be here. What makes you feel better? You'd made me feel better. You probably like to help. You're like a born teacher. I do like helping, so that's good. Um, walking down the street not too quickly is good. I have a friend who's a poet who said, I once walked the trail from my house to Kent Lake in four hours and 15 minutes. It's a long trail through the woods. She said, but that wasn't my best time. My personal best is eight hours and 45 minutes. <laughs> that includes time watching the lizard sunning on the rock and writing down a dream staring at the summit of Mount Barnaby. See, so, now I can do that yeah. after I smoked a bowl. Uh-huh. Well, that's fine. It might be interesting to see if you could do it without. Not to say that that doesn't have its place. But also, what's it like to just saunter down the street for no reason at all? And I think, I don't know, maybe it's the poet Gregory Corso who says, standing on the corner with nowhere to go, that's real power. You know? <laughs> and there's that's a certain way because you're in yourself. You're not, you're not doing on anybody else's errand. Can I ask one more question? Anything. What do you think about um, fighting against your own... L- l- lethar- lethargy? Lethargy. Lethargy. You mean like laziness? Mm-hmm. You look like a really lazy person to No, me. but like this morning, I wanted to wake up at 8, and I woke up at 9.30. Yeah? And well, then, how late did you go? What time did you go to sleep? Now we're getting into it. What time did you go to sleep? <laughs> One. Yeah. And did you need eight hours of sleep? I mean... I do sometimes. Sometimes, though, I know that it's like... I'm... It's, it's not productive. Good. I think being not productive is a fabulous thing. We live in an insanely overproductive consciousness. 
And how about being? How about lazing in bed and then it was fun. listening to something? I had the dog you against my music. back. You mean, are you, you have to get up and produce. This is the great American thing. You know, get back on the assembly line and make more, make more comedy. Come on. I'm so glad to hear it. That's <laughs> And mostly when people think they're lazy, it's not actually. Um, it's either self-judgment or it's fear. And a lot of people who feel themselves to be lazy are really afraid that if they do try to do something, they'll fail or something. So better not to try. And other times it's just that they have this extremely strong self-critic. And one of the things you learn when you start to become mindful in meditation is about the judging mind. And it says you're, you know, you're not doing this right and you're no good as a meditator and not only that, you're no good as a, you know, whatever else it is. You're not really doing it you're right. You're not doing that right. And not only that, you didn't do that right. And just think about that. And they weren't criticizing you and then you're not going to do that one you're right. You're fooling you, everyone. You, wanna, you have to worry. And so what do you do? You say, I hate that judgment. Stop judging. I can't stand that judgment. But what's that? It's just more judging, right? And I don't like the judging mind. All you can do is stop for a minute, look at it and say, oh, this is the judging mind. Thank you for your opinion. You know, you kind of bow to it and say, thank you. And you know whose voice it is. It's not even your own voice. It was recorded in there of somebody else. And, you know, earlier, we won't talk about them or whoever it was that recorded that stuff. And you go, oh, judging mind. You say, oh, I saw the judging mind. I'm getting really good at this. Pride, pride, you notice that? Okay. <laughs> There's the judging mind in reverse. Thank you for that, too. And you get a sense <laughs> of humor about it all, and you realize, oh, you don't have to believe your mind and your thoughts. And then you can use it. The mind is a great servant, but a terrible master, and especially if it's controlled by judging and self-hatred and, you know... People are so hard on themselves. They have so little mercy, so little forgiveness. And it doesn't mean that, all right, then therefore people think, well, if I'm not hard on myself, I'm just going to indulge. I'm just going to take, you know, all the time off, take drugs all the time, do nothing, and just turn into like a bum or whatever it is. That's, that's not who we are. But you do want to be hard on yourself when you're entering an art form or a career. You do? Well, you want to, you know, like when I started comedy, I would keep a calendar and I would make sure I went up 20 times in three weeks or, you know, like I had a little system and I would record it and I would make sure like five to seven times I had to perform every week and then I would record that's, that's it. That's beautiful. That's it's called dedication. Mm. That's called commitment. And no relationship. If I wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't have got exactly. good. No relationship. With another person, no art, no nothing worthwhile um, gets done without dedication and commitment. That's different than this other voice that comes in and says, you're not doing it right, you're no good. You're, that's the judging mind and that you don't need that. Dedication is different. Um, than all that kind of self-criticism stuff. Like, there's a, it's fine to be analytical and say, you know, that one was a bit of a bust because I talked all about myself or I didn't talk about myself enough or whatever. So you, or I knew how I should have worked. You yeah, know, like you have to be critical. That's called that's called discrimination. That's discriminating wisdom. It's seeing clearly. It's totally cool. And what um, about, let me ask you this, though. When yeah. you're discriminating, what if you're also, because this is what also happens in art forms, you're like, well, that person sucks. And you and yeah. your friend talk about, you're like, yeah, their comedy is terrible. And you feel so bad when you do that. But part of getting good at something, I'm sure Picasso hated certain artists. Not that I'm saying I'm Picasso, but I'm just saying, like, you know, you have to be critical to figure out where you 
where you are. Yeah, there are different ways to be critical. One is to see clearly. This this person seems to be a better painter than that one, okay? And another is to get really snarky about it. Oh, my God, look at that, you know? And that doesn't feel that good. No. So you could say, they're trying. That one didn't work. Their stuff doesn't seem to work. And, you, and th- here's th- why it doesn't work. Yeah, and then sometimes exactly. you're right. And so it is a form of figuring out Yeah, and that's totally fine. We're always doing that, and that's a useful thing. So really, I mean, we're talking about mental hygiene in some funny way here. Mm-hmm. It's not that you don't have dedication. It's not that, but hopefully not all the time. I, you need a day or two a week where you and Gandhi just chill with your dog and, you know, and you actually let yourself be and you take a walk and you see what's blooming in your neighborhood, you know. Without and, checking your messages or returning exactly, calls or attaching exactly, emails. Exactly. So you do that so that you have that human time. Um, human time. That's yeah. a nice name for it. And then you also dedicate yourself, which is what you want to do. Some part of you, you're supposed to do something cool and good with your life. And so you dedicate yourself. You could dedicate yourself in a way that has a generosity of spirit to yourself and others. I'll do the best I can. I'll learn. I'll do this over and over again. Any good athlete does that over and over and over again until they get skilled at it. But I don't have to turn into a mean person in doing it, especially not mean toward yourself but also toward others. You can be generous. Yeah, that their, their work doesn't work. It's not very mature yet. It doesn't work that well because of this and this and this, and it's fine. You can actually be gracious. I don't feel like I need therapy anymore. That will be uh, $125, please. Is this free? And once again, that was Mr. Jack Cornfield. If you'd like to hear more of his talks and presentations, I recommend the podcast, The Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour which you can find at the Be Here Now Network, which is at beherenownetwork.com. I also recommend checking out Krishna Das and Tara Brach via the same website as they are two excellent speakers as well. Well, that's it for today's episode. This may be the last episode that I'll release for some time as I'm heading overseas for around about two years to focus on spiritual practice. If you'd like me to contact you once more episodes are released, please email me at shiatsulink at gmail.com and I'll get in contact once they're published. Con Margaritas offers shiatsu, lomi lomi, remedial massage and ear candling services. Currently he practices out of two clinics, one in Fitzroy and the other in Doncaster. So if you'd like to make an appointment with Con, you can contact him via phone on 0419 007 or via email, which is shiatsuman at optusnet.com.au. For more information, you can visit his website, www.shiatsuhealing.com.au. In the past, Con has also offered private teachings and workshops, so if you're interested in that, you can get in contact and see what's on offer. Scott Brisbane offers acupuncture and craniosacral therapy out of his clinic in Brunswick and Mitcham. He also offers workshops from time to time, the latest one being craniosacral and energy work. So if you're interested in that, you can get in contact and find out what's on offer. So if you'd like more information, you can contact him on 0409 599 477 or by email, which is scottwbrisbane at gmail.com. Scott's Drew Yoga class is on weekly at the Shiatsu College. So if you're interested in that, you can get in contact to find out the days and times. And this outro music you're hearing right now is the Melbourne band Miso. If you'd like to hear more of Miso's music, you can go to 
soundcloud.com slash tune into miso that's t-u-n-e-i-n-t-o-m-i-s-o and you can also find them on facebook if you're interested in being a guest on the show yourself please get in contact or if you know a teacher or a practitioner that you think would be a really interesting guest uh, the kind of teacher you've always wanted to hang out with after class but perhaps never got the chance to uh, send them our way and, and you can hang out with them via the magic of cyberspace. So keep checking out www.inkalot.net for more episodes. And remember, you can subscribe via iTunes or a podcast app from an Android phone. My preference is Podcast Addict. I think it's a great app. And if you'd like to support the show, you can give us a rating on iTunes. That's always very helpful. Or you can just promote the show via Facebook or any other social media or just put them on a USB and hand them to a friend, however you like, just to spread the word. If you have any interest in becoming a Shiatsu therapist or just want to find out what it's all about, head on down to 103 Evans Street, Brunswick and say hello to the staff there. Uh, Jenny and Marie who run the college are just wonderful, wonderful people. Uh, they'll be more than happy to tell you all about it and you'll also find a range of other workshops and classes available there, as well as clinic spaces that can be rented if you're a practitioner. For more information, go to www.australianshiatsucollege.com.au. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Please visit www.inkalot.net for more episodes. Have a lovely day. Hope you join us again soon.